following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. We'll say good morning. Come on. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be together. Awesome to be together. Pastor Lewis. It was nice to have the kids with us as well, wasn't it, this morning? Great, great that they're, you know, with us and they can worship with us. Fantastic. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, I trust you do. Please go ahead and locate those and find John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6. Last week, Hill got the ball of our new ministry year rolling by highlighting for us some key principles about remaining in Jesus from John chapter 15 and Ephesians chapter 3. And the reason why he did that is because the new theme for the year is remain, remain. Last year it was radiating Jesus. This year is remaining in Jesus. And if you were here last week, Hill mentioned that as we do that, we will be reservoir people. That is, as we abide in Jesus, as we stay close to him, abide in his word, remain in his love, we will naturally be or supernaturally be reservoir people. That is, we will overflow with life and blessing, fruitfulness that will actually bless others and ultimately bring glory to God our Father. And so that was last week, vision part one, being reservoir people. This week, vision part two, I want us to think about something we human beings cannot live without and yet desperately struggle to find and gain, namely lasting true contentment, lasting true satisfaction. And so if you've got your Bibles open now at John chapter 6, which is largely about the theme of satisfaction, we're going to jump in at verse 25 and read down to verse 35, and then we're going to do a leapfrog thing and read verse 51. And so I've entitled this morning's message, Remaining in the Bread. Remaining in the Bread. So let's come to the text, verse 25 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Sounds good, but listen to what he says. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 27 this morning is the key verse, and we're going to pry it open today. Verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? They're putting out a challenge to Jesus. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, always give us this bread. I missed a point. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Drop down to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, 
which I give for the life of the world. Let's pray. You gave yourself for the life of the world, and I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that we would all here experience this life, this eternal satisfaction, this eternal life. Lord, I pray, move through this message for your fame and for your people's strength and joy in Jesus. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Now, before we jump into the theme of satisfaction, I need to give you a quick snapshot of what's just happened in the ministry of Jesus recorded in the earlier verses of John chapter 6. Jesus, in the presence of this hungry crowd, turns, as it were, this little boy's sushi lunch into a yum cha restaurant, which not only feeds the crowd, but so abundantly feeds them that there are literally baskets and baskets and baskets and baskets. In fact, John tells us 12 baskets of bread left over. At this, the crowd go wild with nationalistic zeal and verve because in verse 4 of chapter 6, John tells us that it was almost Passover time. The Passover festival was almost upon them. And of course, what did the Passover commemorate and celebrate? Still to this day, the nation of Israel's deliverance from the house of bondage, Egypt. And, And question, who was it who was responsible for taking the nation out of Egypt? Yeah, yeah, Moses. Question, who, uh, what miracle did God perform through Moses in the wilderness? The manna, a miracle involving bread. And what did Moses promise the nation in Deuteronomy 18? One like me, he said, who would be the ultimate deliverer, the one who will come and ushering his eternal kingdom. And so this crowd, they've just experienced this miracle involving bread, and they start to join the messianic dots together. They start talking and discussing amongst themselves, this must be the one. This must be the guy of Deuteronomy 18. And so they devise a plan. Let's take Jesus to Jerusalem and instate him as the king, the messianic king. And so they, 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 they go about that plan. But Jesus, being the son of God, he knows their thoughts. And he's going to be no one's domesticated puppet king or messiah. And so he retreats to the mountains for needed solitude. Meanwhile, his disciples jump in a boat, Jesus had told them to do that, and they sail across to the other side of Lake Galilee. John tells us they're met with difficulty halfway across because there's a storm that brews up on the water, and they're fretting, they're fretting out. But to make life even more interesting and even more terrifying, they see this mysterious figure approaching them, walking on the water. And John says they were afraid, they were terrified, and understandably so. I mean, if you and I were there, we would have been freaking out as well. It's like, is this the phantom of the opera? And so Jesus has to call out to them, it is I, Don't be afraid. It is I. And interestingly, amazingly, the phrase, it is I, when translated literally from the Greek, the Greek is ego eimi, when you translate it, it's I am, don't be afraid. 
I am. And so here's Jesus walking on the water, revealing to his disciples that he is Yahweh. He's the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, the self-existent, self-sufficient, self-determining, great I am, the infinite, supreme, glorious God who is over all and through all and in all. He's the one who's walking on the water. And at that, they allow Jesus to step into the boat. And immediately, John tells us, as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, the boat arrives at the shore. And that's John's way of saying, that was a miracle, by the way, because they were smack bang in the center of the lake. And as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, they arrive at their desired destination. Amazing. To cut a long story short, the crowd back on the other side of Lake Galilee, they wake up to find Jesus nowhere. They can't, they can't locate him. They can't track him down. He, he, he went off into the mountains, but they don't know where he is. And so they begin this quest for searching for Jesus. And so we're told in verse 24 in John 6 that they jumped in their boats to cross to the other side of Lake Galilee in search of Jesus. And that brings us to our passage and our narrative this morning, which, as I've already said, is largely about satisfaction. And so as we think about the theme of satisfaction this morning, true lasting contentment, I want us to think about it under the following three headings. The quest for satisfaction, just think of the guys in their boats chasing Jesus, thinking that satisfaction is going to be found in him or something that he will give them. The quest for satisfaction, that's first. Second, the cause or the source of our dissatisfaction. And lastly, the way to lasting deep satisfaction. So that's where we're heading this message. The quest, where is satisfaction or are we foolish to pursue it in this life? The, the, the cause of our dissatisfaction and the way to lasting sweet satisfaction, the healing of our discontent. So first, the quest for satisfaction. Jesus says something to these guys who have tracked him down in verse 25 that I really believe gets to the heart of the question of true satisfaction. This is what he says in verse 27. He says, do not work for food that what? That spoils. Do not work for food that spoils. The New Living Translation is really helpful here because it reads, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. The like food is key there because Jesus is extending the metaphor. Yes, they had come to him seeking literal bread, but Jesus used it as an opportunity to say, hey, if you pursue anything in this life for lasting deep satisfaction, you're going to be dissatisfied. And so the like food in verse 27 can refer to things like occupation. If only I had that job, then I'd be satisfied. Or, or, or that relationship. If only I had him, if only I had her, then I would know lasting contentment. Or financial security. If only I had more money in the kitty, then I would be more secure and therefore more satisfied. Or, or family. If only I had children, then I would know true lasting satisfaction. Or, or a bigger church. If only I had more people coming to church, then I'd be satisfied. That's my one. Uh, what a, a new church. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And Jesus, I believe, would caution us and say, hey, those things might give quick spikes of pleasure, quick spikes of satisfaction, but they won't give you lasting, deep, profound, sweet contentment, nor satisfaction. And so he would caution us not to be like the crowd who tracked him down that day. He would say, don't be materialists. Don't be materialists because in the final analysis, the materialist will always be dissatisfied and restless. 
C.S. Lewis, he, he once put it this way, quote, and this is quite a long quote, but a very uh, important one, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will apply it to each of our hearts. C.S. Lewis said this, quote, Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, and that takes courage, by the way, would know that they do want, and want acutely, that is deeply, something that, that this uh, cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can fully, really satisfy. He goes on to say, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is also always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. Those quick spikes of pleasure that don't last. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it, namely satisfaction, has evaded us. It's escaped us. This is the reality. This is, this is the reality. And, and yet... The sad reality is that many people still think that it, namely satisfaction, is just around the bend, is, is just around the corner. For example, those who are younger subconsciously say to themselves, you know what, if, if I get out of life what I'm hoping to get out of life, then I will know deep satisfaction. Like, like if I get that sweet house... Or if I get that Romeo of a guy, or if I get that money, or that home, or that car, that possession, then I will know lasting contentment and deep satisfaction. And Jesus would lovingly counsel that young him or her and say, no, you won't. You, you won't be satisfied. Don't be so naive. And maybe he would take them to the book of Ecclesiastes and remind them of King Solomon. This king that had everything at his disposal, money to burn, women at his feet. And yet, what does he write in Ecclesiastes? Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. In other words, nothing gave him satisfaction. Nothing gave him contentment. And so Jesus would counsel this young person and say, those things, quick spikes, but not lasting pleasure, not lasting satisfaction. And yet, what is it that happens when the young person grows up to find that the it not really satisfying? Well, well, a number of things depending on one's personality. For some, they become driven. Driven. That is, they start to blame the thing or the things or the person they have a relationship for not bringing them lasting contentment and satisfaction. And so they move from house to house and from spouse to spouse and from possession to possession, from thing to thing, gadget to gadget, job to job in search of it, in search of satisfaction, always telling themselves it's just around the corner. And yet when they get around the corner, they find another corner because that thing hasn't satisfied them. And then when they get around that corner, they're still not satisfied. It's just around the corner they keep telling themselves. And notice, am I actually going anywhere? No, I'm going around in circles. That's the driven person. In fact, thank you, Natalie. My, my wife pointed out that I was going around in a square, not a circle. Thank you. <laughs> circles don't have corners. Thank you, Nat. School teacher, yeah. But interestingly, when the driven pursue satisfaction in these various things, 
Or they may become very productive. In fact, they are industrious and productive, but they become driven and it doesn't satisfy. It's like, you know, those who are on a treadmill, you know, when you, you get on a treadmill and some of you haven't been on a treadmill for a while. And those of you who have a treadmill at home, it kind of doubles up as a clothes rack now, doesn't it? But when you're on a tro- treadmill, you start and you've got to take it easy at first, but then if you're a little game, you might increase your speed. All right? And if you're really super fit, you might increase your speed and then you just increase your speed and increase your speed. But I want you to notice something. Am I moving anywhere? Absolutely not. And that's the thing with the driven person. It's like being on a treadmill. There's a lot of output, but they don't get anywhere. There's no motion. Hmm? That's the driven person trying to find satisfaction around each corner. On the opposite end of the continuum is the cynical person. The one who says, oh yeah, you know, when I was younger, I thought that the end of that career rainbow was a pot of satisfaction. Oh yeah, I, I used to believe that at the end of that rainbow, there was a, the relationship rainbow, the money rainbow, there would be a pot of satisfaction. But you know what? I've grown up now. I've stopped chasing rainbows. I'm not that naive or immature or ignorant anymore. And these type, the cynical, can become quite condescending and arrogant. That is, they turn up their nose at those who are actually pursuing life satisfaction. It's like, (laughs) why are you so naive? And also, those who are cynical harden their hearts. Because, as we're going to see, human beings need deep meaning. Human beings need deep satisfaction. And so just to say, you know, I'm content. I'm not going to strive for this. I'm not going to look for this. In fact, is to dehumanize oneself. It's to work against your own humanity. Because as humans, we need deep, profound, sweet contentment. And so that's the cynical. Lastly, the self-despairing person. They grow up. And unlike the driven person that blames the thing or the relationships that hasn't brought them satisfaction, they start blaming whom? Themselves. Themselves. It's the reason why I'm not satisfied, they say, is because I haven't worked hard enough. I haven't studied hard enough. I I didn't put myself out there to get that job or that career or that promotion that I really believe would bring me satisfaction. Or I haven't been able to attract the right love partner. I haven't been able to do that. And so I'm the issue. I ruin things and I'm the problem of my own dissatisfaction. And for these types, you know, there's, there are many ways to drown one's one sorrows, and not primarily with drink or drugs, but these types tend to drown their sorrows with daytime TV and more shopping and vacation after vacation, trying to find satisfy, satisfaction in those things that don't satisfy. And so you've got the driven, you've got the cynical, you've got the self-despairing. Each of these are dead ends. They're dead ends. As uh, Tim Keller says in his helpful book, Making Sense of God, striking words. And I commend the book to you, Making Sense of God. His chapter on contentment and satisfaction is worth a book alone. He says these words. We want something that nothing in this life can give us. If we keep pursuing it in this world, it can make us driven, resentful, or self-hating. If we try to harden our hearts so that it doesn't bother us, We harm our humanity and those around us. If, however, we don't harden ourselves and fully feel the grief of desires lost hope, we may find self-destructive ways of drowning it. All these approaches look like dead ends. And they are dead ends. They are. 
which means we either stop looking, just sit down, be like this cynic and stop looking, or we look someplace we've never looked before. Those are the two options. And so before we come back to Jesus' words in verse 27, because he's going to alert us there to the way of true lasting satisfaction, we need to think about the cause of our discontent. Why are we so dissatisfied? Why our hearts are so restless? The cause, the main cause of that. One modern uh, theory suggested by some evolutionists is that the human feeling of discontent is actually a chemical response and reaction in the brain that helped our ancestors survive. That's what they theorize. They basically say um, our ancestors who experienced disappointment after achieving their goals became more determined to achieve higher goals and thus they were more likely to survive and so having more children, they passed down to us their industrious genes. And so as the theory goes, the reason why we sense something missing, the the, the feeling that something out there is missing, this human discontent, according to this theory, is a trick played on us by our own genes to get us to be more industrious. That's one theory. Some have pointed out that this theory lacks, you know, uh, substance and it, it, it's found wanting because what made our ancestors dissatisfied anyway? Why were they feeling discontent anyhow? And also, when you experience a disappointment in the, lo- in the short term, that may make you get up and try harder, right? Is that true? When you get knocked down, you know, you, you may get up and try a little harder to achieve your life goals, but if you're constantly knocked down, again and again and again, that actually becomes a powerful disincentive to pursue life's goals. And so the theory doesn't really make sense. We we, we don't become more productive when we are knocked down and experience discouragement. We become frustrated, even depressed, not industrious nor productive. And so under closer examination, the theory, this theory, the evolutionary explanation for our dissatisfaction is not very satisfying. And so we've got to go back to the original question. Okay, well, then what's the source of our discontent? What's the main reason of our dissatisfaction? The ancient church father, Augustine, and uh, philosopher, he said that the reason why we're so discontent as human beings, why we lack this deep, profound joy is, listen, our failure to love God supremely. That's what he said. It's our failure to love God best. It's our failure to love God first, the way God created us to be. And so instead, because of the fall, we now terminate our affections on his gifts. And instead of saying to the gift or the thing or the person, not this, not you, but the maker of this and the maker of you is the desire of your heart and the satisfaction of your soul, we terminate our affections on those things. And we try and find in those things what only God can give us. And so Augustine said the issue is that we have disordered loves. We don't love what is best, namely God, best. We don't love who is uh, the, the supreme one supremely. Instead, we love things and we love his gifts more than him. And that creates discontentment. Our, our lives, our emotions are thrown out of whack, are placed out of alignment, and that breeds discontentment and dissatisfaction. You get it? One example, just to help tease this out for us. If we, for example, and you can apply this, by the way, to anything, if we 
love our children supremely in the place of God, we will end up basing our security and satisfaction on them, on them. We will need for them to be happy. We'll need too much for them to be successful. We'll need too much for them to love us and respect us in return. And that will do one of two things. That will either drive them away because they're like, I can't tolerate this anymore. It's just the pressure's killing me. Or we will crush them under the weight of our expectations because they have become the source of our ultimate joy. And no human being, including our children, can bear up under that pressure or, or measure up to those expectations. And the outcome is always, well, often, misery and heartbreak. Because come on, if we find our security and satisfaction in our children, they're always going to disappoint. Human nature, right? They're, they're not going to be maybe as successful as we hope them uh, hope for them to be. And then you can apply this to your work. If you love your work supremely, that's always going to end badly. If you love a person supremely, that's going to be that's going to end badly as well. And so the reason why we're so discontent is because as human beings we don't love God supremely. The, the bottom line is this: if we love Anything more than God will end up harming the object of our love and also harming ourselves. We will become disillusioned and discontent. And so Augustine famously put it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. In thee. God has created this infinite cavity in our hearts only he, the infinite one, can fill. And so we have this dilemma as human beings, this, this conundrum. I've got this infinite ache in my soul, but nothing in this life can actually fill that hollow, fill that cavity. And so this is where we need to return to Jesus' words. His important, eternally significant words in verse 27. So let's allow Jesus to finish here his sentence because he will alert us to the way uh, to true, lasting, deep satisfaction. He says these words in verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils. We've considered that. But, oh dear, this is a big, big therefore. He says, but for food, he's speaking metaphorically, of course, that endures to eternal life. Now, just for the record, eternal life is life without end, but it's so much more than that. It's a quality of life that never ends. It's a life of deep, profound, sweet joy and satisfaction that will never, ever end. That sounds like an answer to our human conundrum, right? Needing this infinite joy that will satisfy and fill and plug this infinite cavity in our hearts. Listen to what he goes on to say. For food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, I want you to notice something here. I want you to know this. Jesus doesn't tell us here to manage our emotions or manage our desires. He doesn't say detach yourself from this pursuit of lasting joy. In the ancient world, gurus in the East and Greek philosophers in the West urged their followers, urged their pupils to do that. They, they got a hold of a truth, namely that you can't find lasting satisfaction in this world, but they went too far and they said, so the answer is detach yourself. Just pull away from the world because it's only going to harm you. And so just be you know, philosophers and just meditate all day. 
Yet Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want you to become a philosopher. I want you to passionately attach your hearts to this soul-satisfying, life-giving bread that I can give you, this bread, this food that endures to eternal life. Now, question, what is Jesus talking about here? What is he getting at? Because the, the crowd, in verse 34, we're told, they completely misunderstand Jesus. They think, oh, wow, this is great, sweet. Jesus is talking about here this soul-satisfying, eternal Lebanese bread. And, and they say, hey, we want some of that. And they say in verse 34, Jesus, uh, sir, um, can you always give us this bread? I mean, that's why they chased Jesus in the first place, right? That they wanted their fill. They weren't concerned about Jesus. They hid this pinata Jesus where well, we just want the lollies that Jesus gives, but we don't really want Jesus himself. And so they tracked him down. And so Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't pursue me for that reason. Don't pursue me for that reason. And so Jesus is like, I'm not talking about literal bread here. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about me. I'm the one who will satisfy. He says in verse 32, he says, I am the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, he says, I am the bread of God. In verse 35, he says, I am, again, the infinite one. I am the bread of life, meaning he's the infinite one who has the ability and the willingness to plug this infinite cavity and hollow in our hearts, he says. And so in verse 35, listen to his promise. And I pray that each of us would receive this promise and say yes to Jesus here this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, Look at this one. Whoever comes to me. You remember the, the miracle in the wilderness that was performed by God exclusively for the nation of Israel. But here's Jesus saying, whoever, whoever. This is a global invitation. This includes you. He's inviting you. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. What a promise. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This, this is what biblical faith is, church. It's not just a mental ascent. Yeah, Jesus came, he died, he rose, he's now in heaven on some cloud. No, 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 no. It's, it's feeding on him. It's feasting on his love. It's consuming Jesus because we desperately need him. Without him, we starve and we die eternally. But with him, oh, he will grant us eternal life. Satisfying life with no end. And so he's, he's asking us, he's inviting us, come on, come on, whatever you do, come, come to me, come to me and I'll give you this soul satisfaction. But the question becomes, all right, well, what, what's going to help us do that? What's going to help us be wooed to Jesus? What's going to help us actually come to him, not only initially, but constantly throughout our lives, saving us from, from finding satisfaction in things that will never, ever satisfy? How, how are we going to remain in the bread, in other words? Well, it's this, and this is the most important thing in this message. It's the gospel realization, listen, it's the gospel realization that for our ultimate satisfaction and joy in him, Jesus joyfully, lovingly, willingly gave himself up for us in death to deal with our love problem, our disordered loves. Let me, let me explain what I mean by just talking about literal, actual bread for just a minute. When we eat bread, not only has the grain died to actually produce that loaf of bread, 
But also when we have the loaf, we need to what? We need to break it into pieces in order to eat, eat it. Right? No, none of us can just grab the loaf from the, the counter and just shove it in, right? That, we, we can't do that. Only Slimer from Ghostbusters can do that. He can just feed himself with that. If you've seen that movie, you know I'm talking about. If you haven't, you're like, what is Lewis going on about? It doesn't matter. We need to first break the bread. We need to break it into pieces before we can eat it, right? Before that bread can give us sustenance. Before that bread can give us satisfaction and strength. And so this is what Jesus is talking about here when he says, I am the bread of life. He means that he is the son of God who on the cross became breakable in order to make us whole. That he, the true grain, died on the cross in order to give us life. That he on the cross was utterly, totally dissatisfied and discontent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst in order to make you satisfied so that you would eternally cry, not my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God, thank you for accepting me and forgiving me and satisfying me by Jesus, this living bread. Last verse, verse 51. And this puts this so clearly. Listen to what Jesus says here. He says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my what? My flesh. He's talking about his cross. He's talking about his death here. Which I will give. That's love. That's profound love. I give for the life of the world. Church, it's only when we see him doing this for us personally, will our hearts be melted by his love, leading us to love him in return, which will reorder our loves, enabling us to love him supremely because he has loved us supremely at the cross. Amen? And so come on, this year, I urge you, all of us, let's feast on Jesus. We're thinking about remaining in him. Let's not be tempted to think that satisfaction is somewhere else. We have it in him already. And so just go deeper and deeper and deeper into his love. Feed and feed and feed on his goodness until you are full. And then with reordered loves, you can love people in their rightful place, bring blessing to them. You can love possessions in their rightful place, saying to them, not you, but the maker of you is the desire of my heart. Can I hear an amen? Come on, Jesus is the bread of life. And this morning, he wants to satisfy your hunger. He wants to satisfy your heart. He wants to plug the cavity, the infinite cavity in your heart that nothing else can fill. And so if you're here this morning, and this is kind of new to you, and you've been on this journey of faith and you're like, wow, I, I never understood Jesus like that. I, I've never realized that he is this bread. Let me encourage you this morning. Feed on him. He says, whoever will come, they will never be hungry. Do you believe his promise this morning? Do you believe his promise? Then take him at his word. Say, Jesus, I have my doubts. I have my fears. I have my struggles. I have my concerns. But, oh, Lord, would you fill me? Would you give me yourself, not your gifts, but you, you are the ultimate gift, to fill my heart with this longing and this satisfaction. Can I hear an amen? How about we stand? How about we stand? Thank you, church.
and just take a moment and just respond to the bread of life. Let's now by faith just feed on him through thank- thankfulness. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, this is not a thing we do, Lord. We are your people. And Lord God, we are part of your world. And Lord God, this is true. And we're so, so grateful, so thankful that Jesus came. As Newton mentioned in the communion, we, we don't deserve this. But now there's this lavish feast spread for us in Jesus. And you implore us to come, come, take a seat at that table and feast on his love, feast on his goodness, feast on his grace, feast on his soul-satisfying love. Lord, I just pray, oh God, that for those who are on that journey, I just pray you would bring them home to you. Lord, that they would understand that this is what true faith is. It's feeding on Jesus. It's knowing his love and contentment. And Lord God, for each of us, Lord God, those who know you as the bread, I pray, oh Lord, keep us. Keep us, Lord, from pursuing satisfaction in things that will never satisfy, Lord. Lord, Keep us, Lord, remaining in the bread and feasting on his goodness. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you would like prayer this morning, please don't hesitate, come forward. If you'd like to talk to me about what it means to be a Christian and what's involved.